0: for rocking with us. Check it, check it, Julie, kick off the show.
1: Welcome to Crazy and the King.
0: I'm feeling a little spirited. However, I got to tell you, I'm also feeling a bit frustrated and I knew that this would catch you by surprise, but coming off of the heels of our incredible episode last week, first of all, before I even get into the business, how you feel?
1: I feel good. I don't have a yeah. hairdryer. But other okay. than that, I feel good. So let's get to your business.
0: Well, but but not having a hair dryer—that's a traveling problem. Is that like a because most hotels these days they have. So 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 you're 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 bougie and fancy. You're not doing hotels. You're doing something a bit uh, more special.
1: Yeah. So Airbnb usually has a, a hair dryer. This whole okay. week, I just yeah. happened yeah. to not have a hair dryer. It, these are first world white girl problems that I have. So okay.
0: Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Listen, and I know little about first world white girl problems, uh, but I can absolutely tell you about some first world black man problems. We're going to get into some of those later in the story, uh, later in the show. I'm actually a bit frustrated because coming off of the heels of our uh, what I believe to be nice episode, um, you know, around the Texas abortion bill and legislation. I'm disappointed that the Biden administration has made the vaccine a mandate. I'm actually disappointed about that. And let me tell you why I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed because I feel like we went to an extreme
2: without a gradual, like, look, for
0: real, get your shit together. Across the country, put a damn mask on, period. Like, we're not playing these games, put a mask on. Not getting into a business. You're not going into an establishment without them. It it shouldn't have even been an option. Because here's what I know. We keep referring to polio and, you know, some of these other things that have been, you know, around for a while. But that's the point. They've been around for a while. And I'm I'm, I'm fully vaccinated. But I also understand that some folks just need a little time to deal with it's not as if jay we don't have stories right now about the healthcare system doing things that are of disadvantage to black women i'm not talking about medicine i'm just talking about care attention
2: Excellent.
0: so i just Excellent. feel like people need we need to to show people a little bit of give them a little bit of grace and trying to understand this catastrophic period i'm just disappointed oh i'm i'm
1: I'm relieved, so I'm I'm okay. I'm on the other end. Um, okay. And let me let me say this with a little caveat. I think of this as a white person problem more than I think of it as a black person problem. In terms of the nonsense on just being a stubborn ass and not getting this vaccine, like, hey, I'd rather ingest horse glue than or horse paste then go get something that billions of people across the world have gotten and is shown to be effective, right? I think it took too long. I think that we've spent, it's, it's September, we have spent 10 months telling, educating, providing incentive, providing access, providing, you name it, to white people, I'm going to be specific to white people, to white people who have just blatantly refused to give care to their community, to give care to the fact that we all need to get back to work, that our economy is suffering, that people are dying because they want to play political games. I think... The, the big challenge that we face in America that is fundamentally different from where I am right now. So Portugal has the second highest vaccination rate in the world right now. At pro, I think last time I looked at 85% had the first jab and about 75% had both. They didn't get access into the vaccine like maybe four months ago. and And that's the kind of progress that they've made. I have also not been in one establishment and I've been all over the Southern coast in the last three and a half weeks where people are not wearing a mask. Not, not most people, not the people working. Everyone was wearing a mask because there is a sense of community here and a sense of necessity. Right. And so I'll close this out because this is just heavy on my heart is I know that it's a, there's a different conversation that we need to have for black and brown people who have much different experiences with access and the complexity of the healthcare system in the United States. That is not the case for white people. Y'all are being selfish, and I'm sorry Joe needed to get something because Republican governors are never going to say there's a mask mandate, there's this, there's that. And because we have a system that's based on states' rights... And not federalist overreach, which I get and appreciate makes America very, very, very unique. In this case, it is a crippling blow for our ability to maintain um, access to health care in terms of people not dying because they're in cardiac arrest because COVID's full. All of those things, right? Like, I think he had to do something. Sorry. Yeah, that was six whole minutes of us talking about something we were going to talk about for one. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's all good. I mean, you know, we we got it on record, um, and I appreciate your perspective. I also appreciate that Salesforce is clutch. You saw what they did, though, right? You saw what they I did. did. They, I did. They said, you know, Mark Benioff said, "Listen, you know, bottom line is if you got to escape, like if you need, if you need a secret passage up out of uh, Texas that includes a little bit of assistance and a couple of dollar bills, I got you." That's what that man said. Yep. I love how yep. he steps in. You know, he stepped in in Indiana. He stepped in down in North yep. Carolina a couple of years back. I, I like how he steps in and says, I'm putting our organization on the line. And everyone's not willing to do that. Mm-hmm. But I love that he is.
1: Yep. And uh, and now, given that, there, we're starting to see other companies in Texas follow, right? So we needed a big Benioff, a Salesforce name to say, nope, we're out. Um, so good for him. Good for the companies that are following. Uh, you read an interesting report by the World Bank about yeah. poverty. So Talk to me about that.
0: Yeah, it's not so much. So um, the piece around uh, the World Bank, it really was uh, around the fact that the Census Bureau is going to release or has released its annual Poverty report earlier this week. And I really want people, if you get a moment just to go out online, find it on your own, go to the Census Bureau's website, uh, Google poverty report for the Census Bureau 2021. And the reason I want you to do that is not because I want you, um, let, let me just say it in a positive way. I, I just want, I think it's important for us to recognize how things are shifting and who it's impacting. Like when we think of poverty or we think of being poor, we tend to uh, have perceptions around those individuals. But when in fact this pandemic has changed the cascading effect of economics, and, and I want people to be a bit more mindful about who and how people are being impacted. So that's really the only reason I brought that up.
1: Yeah, it's a good read and it's a good good read on things that are going to change around urbanization and I think the pandemic is a practice run if I can say it that way on the mass poverty that's going to be created if we don't take uh, action on climate change which was which the poverty or the World Bank was very very specific about on its impact and so let this be the lesson to take action to make sure that we are building a climate that's going to last and not cause that mass migration that it looks like it's going to. Excellent, excellent read. So, yeah, I yeah. found um Ayana Presley tweeted out a um a, a, she's a big proponent of student loan forgiveness, regardless of how you feel about that. Um a great article from MS Magazine just early last week about student loan debt, and the wage gap. And so I have student loans. This is something that's personal, obviously, to my heart because I know how much it impacts me and my family. But did you know that women in the United States carry two-thirds of the public student loan debt in this country?
0: No, I had no idea, Julie. And when when you put this in front of me, um, naturally, I began to kind of dive into some of the numbers. And there are a lot of people who say that that the student loan debt issue is one that we have taken our eyes off of because people really don't talk about how the shift in, you know, college costs and, you know, really mm-hmm. what that burden has looked like, you know, going from, you know, a largesse of that being on the states in the 70s and the 80s to now it's on the individual, people don't really pay that attention. And it has a disproportionate impact on black and brown communities.
1: It does. It does. You know, the article also pointed out that 70% of black students go into debt, about 15% higher than white students and a full third of black students graduate with a a greater than 40% of debt, which is, compared to just 18% as the average. Um, And COVID obviously has been a huge impact on women of all colors, especially black and brown women, but that women filed 59% of the unemployment claims in the first few weeks of the pandemic. And when we think that women and women of color are carrying the majority of student loan debt and we're also still living with a massive pay gap, we're now living with a massive exit from the workplace. Student loan debt is going to become a DEI issue that, if the government fails to address, which I think it should, can be something that companies start to think about as one of those employee benefits, right? I work for a nonprofit. I'm eligible for some forgiveness kind of think of that in the same way as for a private company
0: so I want to make sure I connect your statement you feel like student loan debt might become or will become a DNI issue in what way just I want to make sure I'm clear on understanding that
1: Yeah so we can't level the playing field if women are starting six paces behind a man and we can't level the playing field if black women are starting four paces behind a white woman in terms of we can't build wealth, we can't build um, entrepreneurship, all of those things that student loans affect because of the debt, the crushing debt that is on so many women, it is a DNI issue. It affects black, brown black, and brown people more. It affects women more. And one of the things that companies can do about systemic issues is think about how their benefit structures are built. And some of those benefit structures and comp structures can include student loan repayment. It's another yeah. way that corporations can start to think about having a fiscal impact, a positive financial impact that will benefit their corporation for years, but will benefit the communities that they're in for. Decades to come
0: yeah, absolutely no, I completely agree, and when you think about it, uh last thing that I'll say about it, you know I remember this was some several years ago, probably you know five or so years ago, a woman called in to one of the radio shows that I listened to, and she was well over four hundred thousand. I want to say Julie, that she was uh five hundred thousand dollars plus in debt for student loans. Um, and that, you know, she basically, she just broke down crying, um, in her call with the host because she said, you know, there's absolutely no way that I'm ever going to get from up under this, no matter how much I try at my current, you know, level growth, uh, projected growth. There's just no way this, this will be with me when I die, which causes a lot of people mental anguish, mental exhaustion, if you will, depression. And so thinking about depression, uh, I saw the story you you shared with me on on Nike, closing their offices for an entire week. That that absolutely makes sense. Like closing the offices just to give their employees a mental break from all that is happening.
1: Yes. We take vacation, everyone else is still working, right? And so we don't feel like we get that break. Obviously this is, a, this is an HQ thing, but I think it's just a good look for, my, for Nike. I think it's a it's a, good, uh, a good standard.
0: Yeah, I really do. So uh, stick with us, um, just a quick ad from one of our sponsors, supporters, somebody who loves and thinks about Crazy and the King. And then when we get back, we're gonna have a conversation. And awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. Cool. So this week, uh, I'm touching on the subject That is central to conversations around diversity and inclusion and extremely personal, Jay, for me. Like, I mean, really, really personal. As I think about our topic that we're about to get into, I think about my father. Uh, I think about, and and my father's no longer with us. My father passed away on Father's Day in 2009. But I think about my father, his days at Sears and Roebuck. how we moved around from city to city throughout the Midwest uh, because every time we moved, it it was a signal that he was growing in seniority. He was growing in responsibility that at some point he would have his own store. He'd be the guy, he'd be the general manager. He, he, he'd gotten that, that brass ring. I don't want to call it the silver ring, uh, but he'd gotten You know, to that particular level. I I think about him. And, you know, I want to explore in our conversation a story that was in the New York Times. And the story is titled Black Capitalism Promised a Better City for Everyone. What Happened? Like, I love headlines that end with a question because it suggests to me that if I read it and spend some time with it, I'm going to learn something. And so I believe that our listeners, if they go out and read, once again, black capitalism promised a better city for everyone, what happened? I believe that it, that story has a direct connection to where we are right now in our business climate and all of our conversations, Julie, around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So before we get into the story, Let's just listen to a quick audio clip which talks about some of the events of 1964 in Rochester, New York. I, I-, I want to put this clip in, even though it has nothing to do necessarily with business or the story. I want to set the stage for the climate of what was happening in 64, how the story got its foundation or its roots, and, and then we can get into our discussion.
3: This new narrative places Rochester at the helm of charting an unprecedented course of economic development for eradicating poverty that not only permeated its own community, but went on to touch lives in communities both nationally and globally. If this is true, then why, some 52 years later, are we faced with the grim reality that Rochester has plummeted to the 5th highest rate of child poverty in the country, a failing inner-city education system, and a growing divide across culture. All of this while situated in some of the wealthiest communities of our country. I believe that the root of this problem can be found in an ancient African proverb. A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree Without Roots.
1: So I think, I mean, as I've been prepping for the show and I'm, I'm very excited to get your take on this story. When I listen to this quote, I think one of the things that I, I've focused on or, or is becoming more a part of my thought process is, we have to learn from our history, And I think that's really what we're going to talk about today is what has happened and what continues to happen in Rochester. But I also think at some point we have to recognize that's the point, right? It is the point of institutional racism. The point of maintaining the white power structure is to repeatedly provide the same narrative without fundamentally changing the system, which keep people poor, keep black people poor, keep women poor. and the lesson isn't that we're a tree without roots, but it's the roots of the tree are not feeding the entirety of the organism. And that's how the watered part of the tree wants to keep it. And that's what I think I felt after reading the story from the New York Times. So I want, I want, I want your intake though. I want your input on um, what you see as the major themes, because this is an incredibly complex problem and i'm so happy that we're talking about it but you also do a nice job of helping me understand the repetitions
0: yeah so i think you know the 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 things a couple of things that jump out for me when i when i read the story um
2: it's that constant How do I frame this? It's that constant um, feeling or that constant pressure from the white power structure, from white men, to say, not yet. That even even sometimes in, in their allyship, it's with a clause.
0: It's with a bit of a handcuff. It's with limitations, stipulations. It's with reservation. I'll I'll give you just a little bit, just enough, but I'm not going to give you too much. Don't ask for too much. Be happy with what we give you. And, and when I read the story, I just couldn't help but think. Uh, and, and this is not the first time, but as I was reading through the story, I just couldn't help but think, Julie, like, how would white America handle, and in this instance, we're just talking 55 or 60 years, how would white America handle having the same exact conversation? 60 years from now, whatever that conversation is around a lack of access, a lack
2: of progress, inconsistent attention. uh,
0: That was the piece that was gnawing for me. Like how would, how, I don't think Enough white people think about the fact that we are absolutely having the same exact conversations that we had in the 60s.
1: Yes. I think it and if I give just a hair of context to the the piece is really about the the 1960s, nineteen seventies Rochester um businesses smartly engaging in social capitalism with black and brown groups, black power groups, which has made me smile and happy. Um, But then as it always happens, right? As black people start to rise, as sometimes competition increases or it's no longer a financial advantage to the company all of that funding gets pulled back and a set of standards get put into place that are not that no white no white led company would be held to right and rinse and repeat and here we are in Rochester in 2020 and we're having the same conversations and you in our show notes hit on some phrases that you felt are very similar that I think for me, after I read this article, honestly, I read it two or three times just to try to pick out the nuances. in it really summed up the gist for me.
0: Yeah. So, you know, taking it back to the, the, the uh, audio clip that you heard prior to our getting into the story, there was a uh, very, very vocal active group in Rochester called Fight On. Uh, and the acronym absolutely stood for something. I'm trying to find it in the story right now. But Fight On really said to themselves, listen, we don't want crumbs. We absolutely want to be at the table. And so it was led you know, by um, the minister. And the minister, I- I'm, I'm going to get his name for you in a moment, But the minister said to to all of us, like, look, we we really want to partner with you, Xerox. We want to partner with you and build something. We want to build an employee-led organization and be a Black business in the city that's employing Black people, that's employing brown people, that's employing white people, perhaps poor white people. But we want to be a difference in the community. We don't want to just be a vendor. So, so give us some seed money, if you will, partner with us and let's build something. And some of the phrases that that rose up or that were written about in the article were were, were people ask, well, why weren't you a billion-dollar company? Um, but they didn't understand the environment that that we were operating in. That's that was a quote. Because Rochester is steep in racism or roadblocks or institutional barriers preventing the organization from growing. Uh, people will say, well, there are there are people who are absolutely threatened by any kinds of success by black people. Julie, I'm telling you, when I heard that, it like it just pierced my spirit because I know right now in DNI.
2: I can tell you three people that I know or three entities that I know where their work is is average at best, but because of who they are led by, white women, they are multi-seven figure
0: institutions. And I'm saying to myself, now I know good and goddamn well, there are other individuals that are doing incredible work and personally knowing that they've not gotten a, re- a return call, not getting a nod, not being included, not asked to participate. It, it, it's just, it's so infuriating. And again, when I read the story and I think about what they are experiencing in or what they experienced in Rochester and how that same scenario is playing out in major league cities all across this country, in large cities all across this country. I just struggle with that whole phrase of pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you have so many people who are trying, working very, very hard, dedicated, but they don't get the nod. They don't get the support. They don't get the access. And and it seems as if, you know, just over and over and over again, we just continue to have the same conversation. And yet again, here we are now, you know, five or six months past George Floyd, and we talked about it. What What did organizations commit? A whole bunch of money. What did they actually deliver on? Nothing. And it's more than money. But they didn't even deliver on that.
1: Yeah. And until they start delivering on that, none of the other stuff that they plan on delivering on matters. I think you make a nice point too here is that they say people are asking, why aren't you a billion dollar company? But then literally two sentences, three sentences later, they're talking about, why aren't you giving enough back to the community? How come you deserve to drive a Mercedes? How come you deserve to live in the suburbs? it everything was a out of side- both sides of the mouth right it you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't and that I think where we're absolutely there are people who are absolutely threatened by any kinds of success for black people that's the demonstration of that if you succeed, your success is too high if you're failing your success or your failure is. Ten times, right? It's it's the whole kind of circular bullshit of keeping the white power structure in place, and that is, and and it is in DNI in such an overt way that we need to call it out more. That is one thing that I have learned from our three years together is that there were things that I was missing as a DNI leader. That should have been obvious on their face, but because I have that back information, now I see it all the time and that's unacceptable. And I, I appreciate you talking through that transparently.
0: Yeah, the uh, in the uh, Reverend that I mentioned was Reverend Franklin Florence has a history of activism in the Rochester area. His son, right now, is still um operating and doing some incredible work in that same area. He actually uh, just had an announcement that he did with the um, who's the Attorney General uh up in um. New York. Letitia, Letitia James. James. So the son, yeah, Letitia James. So the son is still extremely active right now. But, but what I will say, you know, one of the, you know, uh, silver linings in the uh, the New York Times article, it talked about a Mr. Joseph Wilson, who back in 1964 was an individual who uh, took, he's, he, first of all, he's already a leader, a, a, a Black man. He's already a leader inside of Xerox. And, you know, he said to himself, There's absolutely no way that I can sit in my office, look out the window, down on the streets, and and metaphorically, looking down in the community and there not be more Black and Brown people, particularly in leadership, inside of this organization. And one of those individuals that he groomed and supported and sponsored and spoke for when she wasn't in the room was Ursula Burns. And Ursula Burns was actually recruited into the organization under Mr. Joseph Wilson grew to become the first leader, black woman leader of a Fortune 500 organization. And I think it's fitting that we hear from Ms. Ursula Burns in this moment.
3: But you mentioned earlier great progress among um, for women, a greater gender progress than uh, ethnic and racial progress. Tell us what the different challenges are in addressing those two different things.
4: I think one of them is sheer numbers. I'm going I'm to start with the, just the facts. It's it, you know half the population in the world, more than half the population in the world is are, are female, and so therefore there is a number um, momentum that you get. There are a few more of them than there are African American. Or Latinx um, prepared for for business. That's one, but it turns out that that's not the most important difference. What I see, and this is this is not scientifically proven at all, Francis. I've, I've never done any study, but here's my hypothesis, and I probably get into a little bit of trouble on this. Um, <laughs> white women, who who are generally the beneficiaries of of some of the diversity because it's definitely not Latinx women and it's definitely not black women. It is a white woman phenomenon right now. By the way, I say good for them (laughs) and and they having them, there will help help everybody else as well. But white women are more familiar and comfortable to the decision makers than any other type of female. Definitely more familiar and comfortable than black women or Latinx women or even Asian women. So there is a level of we know these people. they we socialize with these people on a regular basis. These people are our mothers, our child daughters, our you know our spouses, et cetera. And that level of familiarity and level of closeness hanging out in the same places, you know, having the same background experiences makes it easier to make a decision. We found out having nothing to do with boards. We found this out well before. I even got involved with bar, boards. People hire people that are like them. People hire people that they are comfortable with. And so we have a, a huge mountain to climb, climb for black for white men, majority men, to be comfortable with for let's say a black woman, or even a black man. So but the black men have a little bit <laughs> a little bit better position than a black woman, for example, or a Latinx woman or, or a Latinx man. So I think familiarity is a big thing. Numbers. Familiarity is is the second thing, and then quite honestly, the international pressure and the state pressure, um, the international pressure in in particular, is a gender pressure. It is actually it excludes. It doesn't have that additional. Please go through this additional set, sieve or sifting process and give me women of color. It is, and and in Europe, as you know, the the entire counting mechanisms you know what what are legally called x or y or z type of people is very very difficult and as the world gets smaller uh, or or more open a lot of the women candidates come from outside of the united states and they come in a decidedly white way um this is not necessarily a horrible thing so i do want to make sure that i'm clear i don't want women to slow down this is not about we need less women white women on boards. No, we just need more black, brown people on boards. We don't need less women on boards. We need more other people on boards as well.
1: I always have to just sit and process for a moment after Ursula speaks because she brings so much power to the conversation and so much nuance in the way that she delivers. And you know I'm one to never give a pass to a white woman because I don't think that we, we deserve them very often. One thing I would say, not a challenge, but I think just a further delineation of what she mentioned about proximity to white, white men and how that is advantageous to white women. She's absolutely correct but i think it that part of that is because that that keeps white men comfortable they know right how to manage how to maintain power structures over white women especially in business settings and white women know what the appropriate feedback to those controls are and so it isn't just a blanket we've gotten lucky because of proximity. I think that we've had opportunity because there's so much less worry about how a white man can control a white woman versus how he can put those same controls in place over a black or brown woman. So I, th- I, I would just say that just slightly more nuance to make sure that we're reinforcing that these conversations are still... About the maintenance of the white male power structure.
0: Yeah, um, and you know, one of the themes that will 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 kind of help land the story is it, it really talks about you know the entire area of Rochester, more specifically Xerox, Kodak, which are mentioned in the story, needing um, or or are not being able to to keep up that the organizations, particularly we, when we got into the age of cell phones and, you know, all of the phones becoming cameras, if you will, that it it challenged the businesses and those businesses then had to kind of reshift their priority and couldn't necessarily focus on uh, this organization that they started out of the, the ground, which was Ltrex, Eltrex, E-L-T-R-E-X. Um, So the story kind of ends with basically saying that everyone needs to reinvent themselves. And and I think, Julie, you would agree with that, that we should all be willing to submit ourselves to a transformation. That if this version of you is not working and not you particularly, listener, but if the version of who you are presenting is not working, you need to go through a process of reevaluating how do I shift who I am? How do I grow and become a better person? I absolutely get that. I also get the fact that in corporate America, there's the ebb and the flow. So I'm not so much so concerned with the fact that the relationship became strained and, and different between Kodak and Ltrex. Um, I'm sorry, between Xerox and Ltrex. I'm not even as concerned about that. I'm concerned about the underlying institutional issue of why. Like you said in the beginning, why do we continue to have this conversation? Black people are not inferior to white people. Black people are not uh, less intelligent, as they used to say, than white people. Black people are not um, any less capable any less smart than white people or any other. And 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 you can take out black people and put in Muslim if you'd like. You can put in, um, you know, Hindu if you'd like. You can put in Chinese, Japanese if you'd like. It doesn't matter to me, I'm just speaking as it relates to this article. And so the persistent, the persistent, persistent, I think that is, it's just that annual caustic, caustic conversation around uh, our always getting the short end of the stick is just something that at my age, I am not willing to continue to watch. I'm not willing to continue to digest. It's not enough, Julie, just for me to have some modicum of success it's not enough for me, like it, it's not enough for for my uh, offspring to be able to enjoy some of the trappings and the fun parts of life. And I'm not out I'm advocating and fighting for other people, trying to make them aware. It's not enough for me to give them a pass that you can be lazy and I coddle their being lazy. No, I'm a challenge the shit out of them as well. I'm going to challenge them the same way that I challenged HBCUs when my book dropped in 2016, when they wouldn't bring me to campus to speak, when they wouldn't bring me to campus to talk about what does it take to be prepared to be recruited by tech companies all across the world. I'm going to the sh- challenge them the same way that I'm going to challenge the power structure. And I guess that was the part that really made this more of a story. It, it was personal for me this week, very personal.
1: And I, I, I thank you. Um, one of the things that our listeners love about us is our transparency, and this is something that we need to hear from you. So thank you for bringing it forward, bring it forward, read the article on the New York Times, uh, read it twice and and think about, uh, where those power structure lies and, and lie and why we keep going around in the same circles.
0: Yeah, one quick mention this week at our Her Voice segment. We've teased you all for the last several weeks. You know, we are absolutely looking for a sponsor. But one person that I did want to um, just highlight, an incredible woman, Dr. Shayla Kadadia. Uh, she wrote a peer-reviewed essay detailing the importance of decolonizing STEM training. You will see a theme through the entire show this week. Everything is... So she wrote an incredible piece uh, titled Decolonizing STEM Training for a Just Biomedical Research Future. Decolonizing STEM Training for a Just Biomedical Research Future, written by Dr. Shayla Kadadia and some other individuals. Um, It's a competitive essay contest organized by the Health Research Alliance uh, and PLO. So, our quote for this week is, there were people back then who said we had to get out of the street and into the boardroom. Our folk went into the boardrooms and we suffered, and that is where we are today, said by Mr. Clifford Florence, a minister at Central Church of Christ in Rochester. He is the son, he is the son of Reverend Franklin Florence we mentioned in the previous story. Uh, Name drop?
1: Yeah. So Kate Bischoff uh, is a very, very amazing employment attorney who I follow on Twitter at K, the number eight, B-I-S-C-H. And she always puts out law in the most simple to understand and to process piece. She had a great thread this week on employer options regarding the vaccine mandates. Lawyers don't always make it easy to understand, but Kate really does. Follow Kate at K-8-B-I-S-C-H.
0: Yeah, that's K, the number eight, B as in boy, I-S-C-H. We love Kate. Uh, Mine is a bit lighthearted. Miss Kim Rice. Kim Rice is an anti-racist artist here in Baltimore City. She didn't grow up in Baltimore City, if I'm not mistaken. Kim is actually from New Orleans, lived in... Oklahoma or, or Nebraska out West. And then she moved her and her family moved to Baltimore a couple of years ago. And I introduced Kim to one of my good artist friends. If you've ever seen me doing video stuff, you'll see some of his artwork, Mr. Jeffrey Kent behind me, but my shout out this week goes to Kim Rice. She has a uh, pop-up installation in New York city uh, in the Chelsea area titled being white. It features collages, crocheted and hand manipulated, caution tape, fabric, rope, um, graphics, photographs, all types of stuff. Listen, if you want to get more information, visit her uh, website, kimrice.net. Again, kimrice.net.
1: All right, my friend, this has been an excellent episode. I'm happy to see your face again. Close us out.
0: Absolutely. I close reminding each and every one of you to share the pod with your digital tribe, like find your voice the same way that Julie and I work every single week to identify our voice, our frequency, our connectedness to the work that we talk about, the work that we do, the situation of each and every one of you. We are intimately trying to get close to that. I want you to find your voice. I want you to be a better human. Let's build incredible cultures, teams, and workplaces. For now, Jay and I are ghosts.
1: See ya.
4: You've got questions, we've got answers.